The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4 The Medieval World Episode 28 The Battle of Hastings The location for this week's episode is the south coast of England on the island of Great Britain, the largest of the British Isles, sometimes referred to as the Atlantic Archipelago for those who prefer to be recognised as not being specifically British, as the islands themselves support multiple nationalities. The island of Great Britain today is completely within the country known as the United Kingdom. Over the centuries, a great number of small kingdoms would amalgamate to become the United Kingdom, with the last act of union specific to the island of Great Britain taking place with the union of the crowns of England and Scotland in the year 1707. Not a lot is known about the culture of southern Britain before the writings of the Romans since the lifetime of Julius Caesar in the 1st century BCE. The tribes of southern England are thought to have been culturally linked to those of northwest Europe, and this is likely to have been cemented somewhat by the aggressions of the Romans, causing concern among all of the non Roman peoples of Britain, Gaul, and the neighbouring Germanic tribes, such as the Belgi. It seems likely that people of Belgic origin were crossing over the English Channel into southern Britain and integrating into the British tribal network. There would have certainly been a long-established trade network that crossed the English Channel. The lands of southern Britain were the first to actually be subjugated by the Romans in the following century under Emperor Claudius. Certainly, if the lands of the north and west of the island were not quickly subjugated, the lands of the south and east were. The Romans built up some of the previous Celtic cultured settlements of the southeast, such as those settlements that today are known as Winchester, London, and Colchester. Roman Britain was briefly a part of the breakaway Gallic Empire during the 3rd century, which was a politically self-governing section of the Roman Empire that distanced itself from Rome before being consumed again into the wider Roman Empire very quickly afterwards. The Roman military commander called Carousius attempted to create a breakaway Roman Empire based in Britain at the end of the 3rd century, but he was assassinated before it could become firmly established. The area of the south coast of England that is the subject of today's podcast episode was probably quite vulnerable to raids while the Romans occupied it. Germanic raiders are likely to have taken their chances on raiding the lands of southern Britannia knowing that there would have been limited numbers of Romans actually guarding the shores. This may have been the circumstances that led to the construction of Saxon shore forts by the Romans along the southern coastline to aid the defence of the lands against Saxon raids. But we also believe that it wasn't only the Saxons raiding the British coast. It was likely that the Franks were doing so and possibly other Germanic tribes with seafaring abilities. One of these forts was called Anderitum, built near Pevensey Bay. The Romans infamously abandoned the island of Great Britain in the year 410, and this left the Romano-British population to defend themselves without Roman assistance. This would also leave them vulnerable to the Germanic raids, 
which would become more intense over the course of the 5th century as tribal societies attempted to cash in on the spoils of the collapsing Western Roman Empire. It may be the case that the peoples of Germanic origin were already living in the south of Great Britain at the invitation of Romans as mercenaries, and it could be this fact that allowed other Germanic peoples to settle Great Britain without the kind of resistance that some may expect from such a wave of ethnic migration. This is not to say that there was no resistance. According to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, in the year 477, a man called Ayla landed on the south coast of England and was challenged by the local Britons. It may be the case that Ayla was seeking to establish his own kingdom in the lands of southern Britain, as the battles appeared to go on for some years and they appeared to be fierce and ultimately conclusive. By 491, Ayla had defeated the locals and could establish his kingdom unchallenged. This kingdom would be regarded as the kingdom of the South Saxons, otherwise called Sussex. This would be the origins of Anglo-Saxon England, which was not going to become anything resembling the modern country of England until four centuries later. Anglo-Saxon England was actually a patchwork of local kingdoms on Great Britain, most of which were established by Angles or Saxons who had migrated from the European continent, with these kingdoms occupying areas that were collectively similar to the territory of what would become the Kingdom of England. Sussex does not appear to have been a powerful kingdom in its earliest years, and may have even been subject to the thrones of Kent to its east and Wessex to its west at various times throughout the 6th and 7th centuries. Written evidence is scant. We have a king list for Sussex during the 8th century, but even if Sussex did have autonomy or independence during this period, it would soon come to an end when the powerful King Offa of Mercia subjugated Sussex in the 770s. After Offa's death, the balance of power in southern England switched from the Mercians to the Wessexians, and Sussex appears to have accepted Wessex as their overlords during the 820s. The Anglo-Saxons Wessex gradually reunited the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms throughout the 10th century after the invasions of the Danish Vikings during the 9th century has resulted in them acquiring half of Anglo-Saxon England. The reconquest of England started after the King of Wessex, Alfred the Great, resisted the Vikings in the late 9th century. Under the rule of his son, Edward the Elder, northern Mercia and East Anglia were taken back from the Vikings, pushing them into the north and centred on the Viking city of Jorvik, which is the modern city of York. Edward's son, Ethelstan, was able to reunite the lands of Danish Jorvik under his rule, giving us the first notion of a united nation state of Wessex that would be called England. The Vikings would not give up their claims on English lands easily and would continue to return and attempt to reconquer their losses. After some initial difficulties by the English monarchs after the reign of Ethelstan, the English organised their political system in order to develop a defensible country. The Vikings would in turn develop their strength, so that when Ethelred the Unready became the king, he would resist the Vikings by paying them off with tributes, which are referred to in this particular context as Danegeld. Eventually, this tactic caught up with Ethelred in the year 1013, when the king of Denmark and Norway, Sven Forkbeard, launched a full-scale invasion of England which was successful. Sven took the throne of the entire English kingdom for himself, but in the following year Sven was dead, and the English nobility recalled Ethelred from exile in the face of Norse intentions. When Sven's son attempted to launch another invasion, he was also successful, but it would take both military and diplomatic steps to eventually 
get the job completely done. Sven's son is known to history as Canute the Great, and he would become the King of England. But as this was initially his only kingdom, with Denmark and Norway coming under his rule later on, he would look to preserve his status as the King of England by showing respect to the nobility and to the culture of the English. One particular son of a thane from Sussex would be given the status Earl of Wessex, and his name was Godwin. Godwin was favoured well by Canute through his reign. After Canute's death in 1035, there were a number of potential candidates for the English throne. By Canute's first marriage to Elfgifu of Northampton, there was Harold Harefoot. By Canute's second marriage to Emma of Normandy, there was Harthur Canute. However, Emma of Normandy had also bore children to a previous King of England, Ethelred the Unready, namely Alfred Effling and Edward the Confessor. Godwin would support the children of Canute over the children of Ethelred, to the point when Alfred Etheling attempted to seize the throne from Harold Harefoot, Godwin personally stepped in and arranged Alfred's capture and murder. It would become clear over time that Godwin's aim was to preserve his own position, on the passing of the two Danish blood kings, Harold Harefoot and Arthur Canute, Godwin would support Edward the Confessor, the younger brother of Alfred Etheling, who was effectively killed by Godwin less than ten years earlier. Godwin was even able to arrange for Edward the Confessor to marry his own daughter, Edith of Wessex. However, the concern was that due to Edward being half Norman, Many English nobles, including the Godwin family, were nervous for the future of the English crown. The Normans The Normans started out as a group of disparate Vikings who had been settled in the lands of northern France, particularly in and around the city of Rouen on the Seine River. Their speciality was conducting raids on the lands of the Franks. Eventually, it would fall into the hands of the West Francian king, Charles the Simple, to come up with a solution to the ongoing problems being caused by these Viking raids, and so he arranged for their leader, Rollo, to be recognised as the Count of Rouen from 911. This would mark the beginnings of the territory referred to as Normandy, named after the Norsemen who were permitted by the French to occupy it. As generations passed, the Normans would start to become better acquainted with the intricacies of European politics and military practices, and they would become a highly respected and powerful region. Over the course of the 10th century, the Normans would take their Christian identity more and more seriously and become less Scandinavian in culture and more French. The Norman link to England came when Ethelred the Unready was facing increased raids on his lands from the Danes during his own reign as the King of England. Ethelred paid the Danes tributes called Danegeld as a result, and the Danes would go away for a little while before coming back again. It seems that the Danes were able to rely on Normandy for a base from which to conduct these raids but it is unclear whether this was with or without Norman blessing, or whether the Danes were also threatening the lands and riches of Normandy itself. A political marriage would be set up between Ethelred the Unready and the sister of Richard II, Duke of Normandy, namely Emma of Normandy. This alliance allowed Emma to become part of the fabric of English politics and even though Ethelred and his descendants were overthrown by Danish invaders, when the Danes ruled England under King Canute the Great, Emma would stay within English politics by marrying Canute. Emma's young children by Ethelred were exiled to Normandy when the Danes took England and therefore they were raised within Norman culture. 
when Emma's son by Ethelred took the throne of England following the death of Canute's sons, he would rule as Edward the Confessor, and the English Anglo-Saxon nobility would have underlying concerns about Edward's Norman leanings. A political marriage was arranged between Edward and Edith of Wessex, daughter of Godwin, Earl of Wessex, and sister of Harold Godwinson, among others. Harold Godwinson When Godwin, Earl of Wessex, was plucked from relative obscurity by King Canute the Great to become one of his trusted earls and confidants, Canute would arrange for a political marriage between Godwin and a Danish noblewoman called Gutier Torkelsdottir, whose sister-in-law was a sister of Canute the Great. Godwin and Gutter would have a number of children together, including Sven, Harold, Edith, Tostig, Gurth, Leofwin and Wolfnoth. The English nobility generally favoured Godwin after Edward the Confessor, son of Ethelred the Unready and Emma of Normandy, became the English king. This may be because the Anglo-Saxons felt that Godwin was much more likely to represent their interests better than the somewhat Normanised Edward the Confessor. A marriage was arranged between King Edward and Godwin's daughter, Edith of Wessex. Godwin would also achieve the acquisition of the title Earl of East Anglia for his son, Harold Godwinson. However, Edward would still seek to keep his Norman friends close to him and this would continue to unnerve the Anglo-Saxons. When King Edward invited Eustace II, Count of Boulogne, across the English Channel to Dover, local residents rioted and ruined the event. Edward demanded that Earl Godwin punish the locals, and he refused. Edward exiled Godwin and his offspring from England. Godwin fled to Flanders, while Harold Godwinson fled to Dublin. It would not be long before they all returned to England and reacquired their earldoms with the support of others. In the year 1053, Godwin died, and it would be Harold Godwinson who would inherit the title Earl of Wessex from his father. Another powerful earl in England was a man called Leofric, Earl of Mercia, and although Leofric and Godwin had been able to work together for the sake of crown and kingdom in the past, Leofric was one of the earls that King Edward the Confessor turned to in order to exile the Godwins. Leofric died in 1057 and so remained a general tension between the descendants of Godwin, including Harold, and the descendants of Leofric, including and through his only son, Elfgar. One of the more notable other ethnicities of Great Britain during this period was the Welsh, who had descended from the Romano-Britons that had been pushed westwards into the lands of Wales during the Anglo-Saxon migrations from the 5th century. Tensions had always existed between the Welsh and the Anglo-Saxons, but Wales had always been a collection of small kingdoms until one Griffith ap Llewellyn successfully united the kingdoms by the year 1055. Griffith would cement an alliance with Elfgar, the new Earl of Mercia, by marrying Elfgar's daughter Eldgith and then attacking the English city of Hereford, which prompted Harold Godwinson into action in England's defence against this Welsh invasion. Harold and his brother Tostig attacked Wales from both the south and north simultaneously, forcing Griffith to flee into the mountains of Snowdonia in central Wales, where it is thought that he may have met his demise thanks to a Welsh enemy while he was attempting to hide. Harold would then marry Eldgith, the widow of Griffith, in an attempt to placate his English enemies now that her father, Elfgar, Earl of Mercia, had also died. William II of Normandy William was born around six years after Harold Godwinson in England and it was in the town of Falaise in Normandy 
perhaps in 1028. His father was the Duke of Normandy, reigning as Robert I, known to history as Robert the Magnificent. His mother was a low-born concubine of Robert's, which led to William being called William the Bastard to illustrate the fact that William was considered illegitimate and was sometimes taunted about it by his enemies in Normandy. William was still a child when his father died on pilgrimage to the Holy Land and so he was not only thrust into the role of Duke of Normandy but also was plunged into the dangerous world of Norman politics where the nobility would compete for control of the new young Duke. This led to a breakdown of the Order of Normandy with a degree of lawlessness within these lands with the nobles scrapping for their place on the ladder of Norman politics. By this time, the Duchy of Normandy was very much a part of the Kingdom of France, and so when William came of age, he would find that he would have an ally in the King of France, Henry I, when it came to restoring order in the anarchical atmosphere in Normandy. Both William and Henry would have a vested interest in restoring this order. William was a grandson of Richard the Good, who reigned as Richard II, Duke of Normandy, Another grandson of Richard the Good was a man called Guy of Burgundy and he would lead an army of Norman rebels against the forces of King Henry I and Duke William at the Battle of Valais d'Un in 1047. Victory for the royal forces meant the start of William regaining control of his duchy but there was still much work to be done. Even so, William was beginning to prove himself as a young man not to be underestimated, with a solid mixture of ruthless aggression and calculated shrewdness in battle. His aims were clear. Recover his duchy and promote both its secular and religious identity. William's position as Duke of Normandy remained precarious due to the fact that the lands of the 11th century French were modernising rapidly and the counts and dukes of the various lands were constantly seeking to get a political foothold in both national and international affairs. It may have been during this time that William would reach out to both England and Flanders for alliances. Henry I, King of France, appeared to be showing more favour towards William's rivals during the 1050s, so William may have tried to garner a political agreement with King Edward the Confessor of England, but also with Count Baldwin V of Flanders, who was having his own difficulties with the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry III. So when William married Baldwin's daughter Matilda in order to consolidate the alliance, Henry III appealed to the Pope Leo IX, and the marriage was declared incestual and was condemned on the basis of consanguinity as a consequence. However, the marriage still went ahead, and Baldwin would also oversee the marriage of his half-sister, Judith, to Tostig Godwinson, while the Godwins were in exile in Flanders. If the Godwins were welcomed into Flanders while Flanders were becoming a political ally of the Normans, then that does put a question mark over the political agreement between William and Edward the Confessor, who at the time was opposed to the Godwins. Whatever actually happened between William and Edward has become a matter of fierce debate between historians as we know that William would go on to invade England and may have looked to retrospectively legitimise his claim to the throne by fabricating a story about Edward agreeing to allow William to succeed him. From the beginning of the 1050s, there was no way of knowing if Edward would not have children, so it seems quite unconventional and unlikely. However, contemporary chronicles do appear to suggest at least a political friendship between William and Edward, which may stem from the latter's Norman upbringing. William would have to bring to the surface all of his leadership qualities to stand firm against the opposition of King Henry I of France, who now feared the power of William, after once supporting him. William's competence at defending his realm and consolidating his rule meant that he would go on to the 1060s as a highly respected European ruler. 
Prelude to the battle. It is now the 1060s. William is the established and powerful Duke of Normandy that was now flourishing under his rule after a period of anarchy a generation before. Harold had proved himself to be one of the most powerful men in England with great military and diplomatic prowess that enabled him to have great authority regardless of the fact that he served under the King Edward the Confessor. A story exists about Harold Godwinson being shipwrecked at Pontieu, a territory on the north coast of the Kingdom of France that lay between Normandy and Flanders. Guy I, the Count of Pontieu, captured Harold and when William discovered this, he paid a ransom to Guy to acquire Harold's captivity for himself. It appears that William treated Harold very respectfully and invited Harold on his campaigns in Brittany where Harold displayed great valiance and bravery, earning the respect of the Normans. Before William allowed Harold to return to England, he would make Harold swear an oath to support William's own claim to the English throne should Edward die childless. At the beginning of the year 1066, King Edward the Confessor of England did indeed die childless. This excited the interest of many parties looking for the opportunity to take control of this prosperous and fertile country. By this time, Harold's younger brother Tostig had become estranged from the English nobility, including the royal court and his brother Harold, who had been forced to depose him as Earl of Northumbria due to massive rebellions against his rule. Tostig fearing for his own life would align himself with Danish mercenaries to protect his position and this would bring him into the association of Harold Hardrada who ruled as Harold III, King of Norway. Harold Hardrada believed that he had a claim to the English crown due to an agreement that took place during the lifetime of Harthur Canute, a previous King of England and so when a desperate Tostig made contact with him the two of them would formulate a plan to work together to claim the crown of England, even if that meant Tostig would have to go against his own brother, Harold Godwinson, in order to achieve his aims. Due to the claimed agreements made by William II, Duke of Normandy, with both King Edward the Confessor and Harold Godwinson, he may have expected to claim the throne of England in January 1066. This didn't happen. Kings of England were elected by the Anglo-Saxon Council, which was called the Wittenigamote, with the participants being called the Witten. The Witten elected Harold Godwinson, brother-in-law of Edward the Confessor, as his successor, and William was apparently furious. William would appeal to the Pope Alexander II to recognise that his own claim to the English throne was more legitimate than that of Harold Godwinson and the Pope agreed. And this allowed French nobles from far and wide to legitimise their own support of William's proposed invasion of England, with William promising them legal property as a reward once the invasion was successful. This enabled William to amass a highly capable army with the biggest challenge being the ability to transport them across the English Channel. Maybe some inherited Viking shipbuilding and navigational knowledge was able to help with that. The first major challenge to face for King Harold II of England, also known as Harold Godwinson, was that of his brother Tostig aligned with King Harold III of Norway, also known as Harold Hardrada. The culmination of this northern invasion came at the Battle of Stamford Bridge in September 1066. After a bloody battle, Harold Godwinson defeated the Norwegian army and both Harold Hardrada and Tostig Godwinson were killed. This was a major battle between two great European kings and should have been part of the great legacy of King Harold Godwinson of England. But this great victory was about to be overshadowed by something far greater and something that would leave an even greater legacy for the future. Just three days after this victory, 
Harold Godwinson learned that William had landed on the south coast of England after biding his time and waiting for conditions to be favourable for his great crossing of the channel. Knowing that it would take some time for Harold Godwinson to gather his forces for the long march down to the south coast, William decided to set himself up at a base camp on English soil. He had landed around Pevensey Bay, the same place that the Romans had previously set up a Saxon shore fort many centuries previous. William would use this Roman fortress as his own camp, building a wooden castle there, with the castle being a continental European adaptation of a fortress. The Norman fleet is believed to have numbered around 600 ships, which carried thousands of men, some of which specialised as archers, others specialised as knights. The logistics of bringing a few thousand horses across the channel, including everything they needed for their care and maintenance, is simply mind-boggling. This was a huge operation. When Harold Godwinson's tired army finally arrived in the south of England, on the morning of the 14th of October they specifically set up a defensible position at the top of a mound, possibly Coldbeck Hill, a few miles inland from the coast. With woodland to their back, swamplands to their sides and a great view of the landscape below, the Anglo-Saxon position was strong and thought to be impregnable as a consequence. The Norman forces marched northwards from their camp to meet the Anglo-Saxons on the very same morning. The Battle of Hastings Accounts of the Battle of Hastings mention a character called Tayfair, who had travelled with the Normans to England and then to the battle. At the start of the battle, Taifair emerged from the Norman front line. He is said to have started singing the Song of Roland, which refers back to the Battle of Roncevaux Pass, a famous Frankish battle from the 8th century and subject of our episode 18. He is also said to have been playfully juggling with his sword. Whether or not these accounts are strictly true or not, there is a suspicion of him charging into the Anglo-Saxons and killing two men before being slain himself. With the Anglo-Saxons holding the higher ground, William gave the order for the Normans to deploy their archers in a bid to overcome the disadvantage. The Anglo-Saxons quickly sheltered under a wall of shields. It was clear that the Anglo-Saxon army's tactic would be to weather the Norman attacks and then pick them off. For the Normans, they had to be the aggressors in order to break down the Anglo-Saxons, but they had to attack with care due to their position on the battlefield. Norman advances were somewhat worthless as the Anglo-Saxons sheltered behind their shield wall and used their spears to pick off advancing Norman infantrymen one by one after the Normans had exhausted an amount of their arrows in the initial attacks. It was clear that the Normans would have to be much more innovative in order to gain the upper hand. The Norman left-hand flank was predominantly Bretons from Brittany. The Bretons were commanded to advance forcibly. This time, the Anglo-Saxons were not only able to weather the attack, but they were also able to chase the Bretons back down the hill. The Norman army was in disarray by this time, and not making any kind of headway against the hardy Anglo-Saxons. William himself was seemingly unhorsed during this shambles, and a rumour spread throughout the Norman ranks that William had been killed. If this had been the case, then it is likely that you could believe that this could have been the end for the Normans. However, William emerged from the chaos and he mounted his horse, opened the grille of his helmet and declared that he was still alive. This was hugely uplifting for the Norman army, most of whom had invested everything in the success of this battle and possibly believed that they had lost everything. Now hope was restored. Time was against the Normans, as they needed a result. 
If night fell, the Anglo-Saxons would have held out and the battle may be lost. William needed to do something. So it may be then that William decided to deploy the Breton left flank again, but this time it would be a feigned attack in order to entice the Anglo-Saxons to pursue them once again and break the ranks of their well-organised defences. This time the tactic worked and many Anglo-Saxons who had left the safety of their ranks were rounded up on a hillock and slaughtered. The Norman cavalry then advanced in a bid to exploit the holes in the Anglo-Saxon battle lines now that the likelihood of impact was much higher than at the start of the day. The result of hours of battle saw great numbers of Normans and Anglo-Saxons killed in ever-growing numbers on the battlefield. The Anglo-Saxons' walls tightened as their numbers had become depleted and William had to organise one more attack as the day grew weary. How many of the Norman and Anglo-Saxon nobility had been killed by this point is unknown. The hill was a slippery, bloody mess of bodies, armour and weapons. The Norman archers filled the air with arrows once again as the remains of the Norman infantry and cavalry attempted to advance. It seems that the Anglo-Saxon defences gave way to this great last desperate advance. The most famous account of the battle is the illustration called the Bayer Tapestry and it depicts a man being struck in the eye by an arrow that has been speculated to be a depiction of Harold Godwinson's death. Some accounts say that he was struck in the face by an arrow but removed the arrow and continued fighting. Some historians say that the arrow was a later addition to a version of the Bayer Tapestry that has been mistaken for the original version. Some even say that the figure in the embroidery isn't even Harold. Accounts of Harold's death describe how he was hacked to pieces during a Norman advance with there being no mention of an arrow at all. We do know that Harold was killed. We also know that his brothers, Gerth Godwinson, Earl of East Anglia, and Leofwin Godwinson, Earl of Kent, also died at this battle. This is significant because it ruled out the Godwin line in terms of claims to the English crown going forward. The Anglo-Saxon army was either slaughtered where it stood, fighting until the bitter end, or they fled knowing that there was no hope. Aftermath Thousands died on the battlefield that day. Harold's body was so mutilated that it had to be identified by his mistress. A new King of England would be announced and his name was Edgar II, King of the English. Edgar II is more commonly known to history as Edgar Etheling and he's not very well known as an English king because he was never actually crowned. Instead, he was declared as the new king by the Anglo-Saxon Witten because William would still have a lot of work to do in order to be allowed to become the King of England. William would need to travel from place to place to place, forcing settlement after settlement to submit to his will. And in some places, including London, he would face stout Anglo-Saxon resistance. The Anglo-Saxon people did not want a Norman king and they were willing to fight against it, fearing for their futures. For William, he did not care. He had one sole aim and that was to take the crown and he would terrorise the English on his way to taking control of London and slaughtering many people in the city. There was no option but to give William what he wanted, the crown of England and he would spend the next 20 years imposing himself on the country from north to south, turning over most of the land into the hands of his continental allies and destroying the lands of those who resisted him. William gave the Anglo-Saxons no choices. Accept Norman rule or lose everything. 
the residents of England would be subject to a centralised foreign rule for the first time since the Roman invasions of the first century. But similarly to the Roman invasion, this spelt a time of great modernisation of the lands with an overhaul of governance that would affect many aspects of how the country operated. Due to William's great desire to control every aspect of every man's life in England, a system of taxation was introduced that would give England a structure that it had never seen before, and from this structure emerged a strong and effective kingdom. As an Englishman and someone who loves the history of my country, I'm going to give you some of my opinions about this episode in history, so I hope you'll indulge me. For me... Anglo-Saxon England was a very fruitful kingdom and without radical modernisation of the country there was always going to be a powerful European nation that would achieve this. The Normans, descendants of the Vikings and a product of the French came to England and modernised it. They modernised it so well that never again could this island-based nation be conquered again such was its power, centralisation and defensibility. William's success in taking the crown of England was down to terror and propaganda. William was willing to go to great lengths simply to legitimise his claim to the throne in the eyes of the people and in the eyes of God. He commissioned the Bayer Tapestry to not only glorify his victory at Hastings, but also to justify the battle with a demonstration of the events of Harold Godwinson swearing an oath on sacred relics to support his claim. These convenient little markers in history stretch back to a reference in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle to a meeting between William and Edward the Confessor in the early 1050s that was construed to be a pledge of the crown to William. William fabricated his claim to a crown that he was not welcome to. For many years the Anglo-Saxon nobles feared Norman intervention in English affairs and the official kingmakers of Anglo-Saxon England in the 11th century were the Witten. The Witten selected Edgar Effling as they had selected Harold Godwinson before him. There was no desire to select the Duke of Normandy. However, this is how the events that led to William's claim are documented and we have no way to categorically deny their occurrence. We know that England was well on the way to the era of the Plantagenet Middle Ages where the monarchs would come so close to taking the crown of France during the Hundred Years' War. But that is a story for a future episode. Thank you very much for listening to that episode on the Battle of Hastings. Uh, it went on a bit. I, I'll be honest with you, I couldn't stop writing about it. I love that episode of history, the Battle of Hastings. If you ever get a chance to go to Battle Abbey and just walk around that, uh, the grounds and and sort of envisage the whole battle on that battlefield, you can actually do a circuit of the battlefield and, and really sort of try and picture exactly what was going on. So it's a great place to visit and uh, a lovely area of the country down there, the south coast of England. So you can like sort of make a good day of it really down there. So it's a highly recommended, but a great episode. I really enjoyed uh, writing about the Battle of Hastings and, and as many times as I've read and heard about it and, and watched documentaries about it I still just don't get bored of it it's a wonderful episode and and such is the the wonderful uh, intricacies of all the stories that are involved around it that that's really what has given it a, a great historical legacy is the fact that the whole story and the circumstances surrounding it uh, are absolutely fascinating to just sort of delve into and explore more so um, a really really interesting episode of English history the Ancient World Cup. This week, uh, the Ancient World Cup, we had uh, match number eight of round two between the Phoenicians and Ptolemaic Egypt. And um, this is the final uh, round two game of the left-hand side of the draw. If you follow in the visual, um, the visual guide on the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website. And... Um, I can announce that the, the winner 
with a whopping 79% of the vote was the Phoenicians. So we say goodbye to Cleopatra and the Ptolemies and the Phoenicians will go through to the next round to face the Sumerians. So that completes the left-hand side of the draw. We will be back uh, in the coming weeks uh, with the first match of the second half of the draw, the, the right-hand side of the draw. And uh, so uh, stay tuned to the History of the World podcast for more updates about that. Listener messages and reviews. Uh, got a review this week from Olka B. Dronka from the United States of America. But love this. Greetings from Newark, Delaware, USA, a.k.a. the first state. I was a history major, anthropology minor in college, so naturally I was drawn to this podcast. I was looking for something that went to the very beginning, but it was difficult to find since... Uh, No one went in chronological order. I realise history doesn't happen in a straight line, but this does a great job of grouping events into periods. I'm very glad I ended up finding this. I process a lot of documents on my computer and listening to this helps pass the time and every so often I learn something new. Thank you for taking the time to research and record this. With such a long timeline, this is no small feat. Keep up the amazing work. Thank you. Thank you very much for that review. Yes, um... That's the story of how this podcast started out. It was uh, basically I started looking for something that was a chronological history of the world and couldn't find it and thought, well, why don't I just do it myself? Um, Emails we've got this week. We've got uh, from one from Karen Larard, who's put, uh, Dear Chris, I'm a newish uh, newish listener from Denmark. I'm currently at Volume 3, Episode 16. I'm writing to you because you keep referring to groups of people as races. I'm sure you're aware of the fact that there is only one race of humans, namely Homo sapiens. To divide humans into different races is a cultural concept. Human races don't exist. Racism does. I hope that you can understand my English and the message I'm trying to convey. Kind regards and thank you for teaching the importance of history from Karen Larard. Kind regards. Um, thank you, Karen. Um, interesting, uh, interesting point of view. Um, I I completely understand the point that you're making. Um, we yes, we refer to the human race. Um, it is typical um, to hear races of people from different countries um, referred to as such, um, but it can be like synonymous. You can uh, you can have races, you can have nations, you can have cultures, and and sometimes you have to think about the word that you pick. Um, but it's not it's not incorrect. But I understand your point. I I totally understand the point that you're making. Um, and as always, I always like to hear what the listeners think about um, terminologies. Very important subject. Um, I did have someone approach me and, and uh, just make a small criticism of the fact that I use the word uh, sedentary to describe humans um, becoming um, residents at, uh, let's say, permanent uh, settlements. Um, so... Um, the the word sedentary um, in everyday English, but I think it sort of means to be idle, you know, to sort of do nothing. Um, whereas in this context, um, it actually means to be like settled at a permanent residence, and uh, so that it's, it's sort of a, a terminology that's applicable to that field of science and that field of study. So when I say sedentary, I don't mean that they were lazy. I mean that they were sedentary in the in the in the archaeological sense of the word in the historical uh, context. So, um, yeah, terminology is a very very important thing, and I think um, you know there's it's been a number of times where people have maybe pulled me up on uh, the meaning of words and and the pronunciation of words, and it is very important, and uh, and and it also adds to the authenticity of the podcast if I actually know what I'm talking about so it's you know I'm never disrespectful of anyone that does send me uh, emails of that they're very very uh, helpful indeed Um, so going forward now um, the podcast is going to take a little bit of a break um, while I get a couple of things done in my personal life and uh, while I sort of focus on 
preparing for the next wave of podcast episodes. Uh, so you can expect a few unscripted episodes during the month of June. And uh, next week I'll be talking about my visit to uh, the podcast show uh, in London uh, this week. Um, I was able to meet a few interesting people and uh, consider the future of the podcast as well. So um, so I'll, I'll update you on that one next week in next week's podcast episode. Um, but then also coming up, I think, in July, before we take up the story of medieval history again, before we continue with Volume 4, um, I have promised some special episodes uh, for some very loyal and dedicated listeners who have made uh, significant financial contributions towards this project and as such have earned the right to commission their own podcast episode so you can look forward to uh, episodes about the Khoisan language speaking cultures of Africa we're also going to be doing a, an episode on the history of Crete and uh, then we're going to do a long-awaited episode which will be episode 29 on medieval weaponry and uh, that's for Eric G Young who's a, a long time listener of the podcast and has been waiting patiently for me to get round to doing that episode so I think you'll uh, have the pleasure of listening to all three of those episodes in July uh, and then we will take up the uh, the the podcast that volume four once again will be talking about Christian monasticism in Europe and the development of uh you know this this whole thing about um feudal societies what are we talking about when we talk about feudal ways of life so we'll look at that um the the development of the papacy is quite important so we'll be focusing on that and then how that influenced the christian crusade so that's all we've got to look forward to uh going into the summer months of the podcast um so once again, July, we'll be looking at those special episodes and um, you can commission your own special episode. Don't forget, um, everyone has got the ability to qualify for that. All you have to do is sign up to become uh, a patron of the podcast. And the easiest way to do that is through the Patreon link, um, which you can find at the History of the World podcast.com website. And when you sign up, you become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. And uh, we welcome into the Illuminati this week, uh, Corbin Havner. Corbin Havner. So welcome into the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. Um, and uh, thank you for your valued contributions. They all add up and they all make this podcast a lot better. So thank you. Uh, anyway, uh, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. And uh, we'll look forward to hooking up next week uh, when I'll let you know a bit more about the podcast show 2022, which I went to in London last week. So until then, be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time. <laughs>